chapter 13, and we are almost done with this series, and I am going to be mourning. I know some of you are not going to be mourning, but I'm going to be grieving. This series has been exciting for me, and it's been so eye-opening for me. And I want to encourage you, as we get down to the end, sometimes we could get a little bit, you know, lackadaisical, we can sort of relax a little bit. I think maybe the, the best, maybe, the best doctrinally, the best, practically, the best part of this whole series are these last three messages in chapter 13. And so I want to encourage you to really stay in here for the last two parts of this series, and let's see what the Lord's going to do by way of encouraging us, emboldening our faith, and helping us to build these walls of salvation and keep them strong before the Lord. Let me, let me throw something at you and try to hold it in your mind as we work our way through this sermon. The world's smiles are more dangerous than its frowns. Now I want you to think on that for a minute. Remember, you come to church, you don't put your mind in gear, you don't put your mind in neutral, you put your mind in gear. You gotta deliberate with the Word of God. You gotta hear what I'm preaching, you gotta go, wow, is that really true? That's what I want you to do. I want you to proof text me with the Word of God every time. The world's smiles are more dangerous than its frowns. Now hold on to that. We're going to unpack this sermon. Let me see what we can learn from this. So we've got spiritual enemies. Now listen, are you a Christian? Now don't tell me if you've been a Christ, you know, that, yeah, I'm a Christian because I've been to church all my life and, you know, I was baptized as a little baby. Listen, I'm not asking you if you've got the form of religion. I'm asking you if you have put your faith exclusively in Jesus Christ. I had somebody recently come up and thank me for what our church is doing. And he doesn't go to our church. His children were involved in one of our children's ministries. Now listen, here's what he said. He said, I want to say thank you for what you're doing because what I do is I try to get my children to get to all of these churches so that they can see God is in all of these religions. Let me tell you something. God is in the religion that lifts Jesus Christ up exclusively. That's the one he's in. So if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that he is the way, the only way to the Father to be saved... And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have three spiritual enemies. I've got them too. We've got enemies. And we saw two weeks ago, the first part of chapter 13, one of the names of these enemies is Tobiah. He's an Ammonite. And we unpacked that two weeks ago. And we learned that he represents the flesh That part of us, now listen, that that sounds weird if you don't know the terminology of the scripture, especially the New Testament. It's not the, it's not the skin part of our flesh. It's the organic, spiritual, pulsating part of our flesh that it's dying. Listen, it's dying, but it's still struggling against Jesus. It's that old nature that is full of wrong desires and the flesh, it runs contrary to the heart of God. That flesh tries to pull us, pull us into sin. We all have it. By the way, you've got it whether you're a Christian or not. If you've, if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, then your flesh is very, very much alive. It is pulling you into sin. 
And you might delay it, but you're going to fall. Now, if, you're, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that flesh, that old nature, the old man, it's dying. It was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. It is slowly ebbing its life away. And new life is coming in. And that new life is your new nature. That new life is coming through Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God that lives inside of you. But that's one of the enemies. And today, what we're going to see is the activity of the second enemy. His name is Geshem, the Arab, and you're not going to read his name in chapter 13. You're going to see his influence. If you go back earlier, chapter 2, chapter 5, you're going to read about Geshem, the Arab. He was wealthy. Now listen, you've got to know this, because what I'm, how I'm going to describe Geshem is going to help you understand which enemy he really is. He was wealthy, he was powerful, He was the ruler to the south and the west of Jerusalem. He controlled that area. Now listen, he controlled the commercial interests. He controlled the trade routes in that entire region. See, if Jerusalem rebuilds and regains her strength, then he won't have the access. He won't have the trade routes that he's enjoying and all of the wealth and the profits that are coming in. His goal is to keep Jerusalem weak. His goal is to keep them in shame and disgrace and run down. That's his goal for you. That's his goal for me. He's a schemer. He's a killer. He tried to assassinate Nehemiah. He's dedicated to opposing God and God's people. He is, he is a fierce enemy of every Christian. And so you've got Tobiah that represents the flesh. Now listen, now you've got Geshem that represents the world system. You know what the world system is? Now you have to hear this. Because we're immersed in it. And you're going to see it all around you. The more I preach on this, the more you're going to see it. The world system is the satanic energized. It's powered by Satan. He is the God of this world, the Bible says. It is satanic energized power that opposes God's kingdom. The system of the world is alive, friends. It's not inorganic. It's spiritually organic. It is dynamic. It has desires. It's got passions. They're dying away. But listen, it's alive and it's opposing Christians. And they work together, the flesh and the world. And they're underneath Satan's management. We're going to see him next week. And they work together in a very, very effective manner against Christians. So let's get real for a minute. And let's get you kind of immersed into this message. Now, let me ask you a question. You can raise your hand. How many of you are tired of falling into sin? I mean, honestly, it's relentless. It's like the ocean. The surf just comes wave after wave. You ever been out in the ocean when it's really big waves and one knocks you over and you get up and before you can hardly get the water out of your mouth, here comes the next one. Listen, that's what it's like being a Christian. We've got waves of these enemies and their strategies and their schemes and their plots and they're coming against us and they're trying to do, listen, they're trying to take you 
And they're trying to take me, and they're trying to keep our faith weak. They're trying to discourage us. They're trying to get you to the point where you don't believe that God's power is really enough. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get us to give up on God. Listen, this is a lot of what I do as a pastor. I take people whose faith is ebbing, whose faith is flagging, whose faith is weak. And here's what I do. I come alongside them and I bring the word of God. Listen, I don't bring any eloquence. I don't bring any wise sayings. That doesn't work. I bring the word of God. The word of God is what re-energizes faith. The enemies are trying to erode the word of God. Listen, I know somebody right now in our church who's struggling in massive sin. And this is the sin. Listen, there are some sins that you can forget, you can forget, you know, ask for forgiveness and you can recover your balance and keep going. Not this sin. This is a sin that will destroy his life if he does not defeat it in the power of God. I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating. And here's what happens. I've seen it over and over and over and it's happening in some of you. I can guarantee it. The enemy, all three of them, They're eroding your faith. You know where they're going to start? They always start the same place. Satan did it in Genesis 3. He's doing it today. You've got to lose your confidence in the word of God. Well, I know it's God breathed, but every single word of it? Nah, it's written by human authors full of errors. That's a good book. But it doesn't have the only truth. Listen, that's the eradication, that's the slippery slope, that's the eventual failure of the Christian's faith. And that's what our enemies are doing, and they work together, and they come effectively against Christians. So we've got Jerusalem in chapter 13, and Nehemiah is the governor, he's back again, he left for a little bit, maybe a couple years... Things start falling apart. He gets back and once again finds the Jerusalem. They're being overrun. The enemies are finding their way into the city. And here comes Nehemiah. Ready? Here's what I love. He steps in to do battle. You know what I want to help us do? You know what I want to help us become? Warriors. Fighters. Do you know who fights the most in Scripture? It's not King David. And it's certainly not the Apostle Paul, it's God. Nobody fights more than God. He is a warrior God. And he's inviting us into the fray. And I'm going to teach us tonight, today, how to enter that fray. How to battle the world to win. How do you beat Geshem? Here's the situation. Let's look at the text. Verse 15, you all got your Bibles open? Let's look Nehemiah chapter 13. We're a church of God's word, so let's get our Bibles open. Here it is. In those days... I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. So here's Nehemiah. He comes back from Persia. He was there for 12 years. He goes back to Persia. Likely two to three years, he comes back to Jerusalem and he sees that that Geshem, represented by all of these merchants, all of these commercial ventures, 
they had overrun his people and they made it into the city. You're going you're gonna to see him remark, they made it into Jerusalem itself. He's shocked. He can't believe that after all of the work of rebuilding, this wall that's two, two and a half miles around the city with gate after gate and battlements, it was made to keep the enemy out. Here they are in the city. Here's Tobiah in the temple. And he comes back and what's he find? He sees that on the Sabbath, Saturday for them, on the Sabbath, they're, they're trading. The market is open. All right, now I'm, I'm kind of stressed there for a reason. Because, listen, in our day right now of the Zimmerman court trials and the Boston bombings, if you're really honest, you might possibly be thinking, okay, they're selling food and making wine on the Sabbath. What's really the big deal about this? Why is that so bad? Let's unpack it. The word Sabbath itself, here's what it means. If you know this, you know more than most of the church around America when it comes to the Sabbath. It means to cease from labor. That's what it means, technically, to cease from work. And God gave it to them for two reasons. So why did he give the Sabbath to his people? Well, the first reason was this. It was to remember, it was a gift, by the way, it was a gift to remember to rest and reflect. It was a gift to remember to rest and reflect. And you've got, you know, Exodus 20, and, and what you're, when you're reading it right now, I'm just going to tell you, God designed, he, he never designed the human body or any animal for perpetual work. Nobody can work perpetually, ongoingly, without rest, without, bre- without a break. That's why the Greek proverb says that the bow that is always bent will soon cease to, to shoot straight. And on that day, they got the, they got the day off. It was a day to rest and whole families. I get this. If you read the text, whole families, fathers, mothers, children, servants, listen, donkeys, cattle. I mean, they all got to rest. It was a gift for every living creature in God's kingdom, in the people of God. The Sabbath was a gift and it was a gift to remember to rest and to reflect. And it was a re, a weekly reminder. That God, He is the creator of everything. He's the creator of all. And on that day, that Sabbath day, we rest, we reflect on His awesome acts of creation. You know how that works, by the way? Listen, you've got a day in your life where it's a weekly day where you just rest, you cease from ordinary labor. Doesn't mean you let dishes pile high. It means that you make somebody else do it. That would be unordinary, inordinary, right? Do you have a day in your, in your week where it's an ordinary, or, or rather a regular rhythm to cease from labor? And what you do, what's part of, part of what you do on that day is you look back over your week over, with, with the filter that God is the creator God. What new things did God create in my life this week? What new songs is my soul able to sing because God loves me? Because God's always active around me. And God's always doing something in me. He's always doing new work. And so you take that regular rhythm and you begin to cease from ordinary work. And you carve into that day the discipline of looking back over your week and saying, Man, God is awesome. Wow, I didn't even notice what he did until now. 
God rested on the seventh day, listen, not because God ran out of steam. He rested on the seventh day, not because he was winded, not because he was tired. Listen, because he enjoyed reflection. He enjoyed reflecting on his creative acts. It was a day that God models for us. You set a day apart, a regular rhythm. You cease from ordinary labor and you begin to reflect on what the creator God is doing in your life as he is all about new works and acts of mercy. Listen, if his mercy is new every morning, if that's true, that tomorrow morning when we wake up and we walk away from our bed, we've already got a whole boatload of new mercy from God. Why? Because it's going to be needed. Because it's going to be needed. God is forgiving. God is awesome. He's the creator God. But it's also a gift. It's also a gift to remember their redemption. Not only did they take this day to rest and reflect, they took this day to worship, to remember that God saved them. It was a day to celebrate, remembering that God saved them from their endless toil and slavery. Listen, can you imagine being a Jew in Egypt when they were in slavery? Now listen, look at me for a minute because this is alien to us. The closest I've ever seen this was in Haiti on a mission trip. They never had a weekend. They never had a weekend when they were in Egypt. They never had a day off. They didn't have vacation days. They didn't have holidays. They didn't have personal days. Every single day they had to show up to work. They had to make bricks. They had to work for their masters. And so God redeems them. He purchases them. He brings them out of Egypt... And he gives them freedom to serve him. And he says, listen, I'm not going to be like the Pharaoh. I'm going to be a good and merciful God. I'm going to give you a day every week. And I want you to cease from ordinary labor. And I want you to reflect on my redeeming power. How I've saved you and given you freedom. Not to do whatever you want, but to do what I'm asking you to do. To serve and worship me. You know, if a foreigner was visiting a Jewish home in the Old Testament, let's say you're from out of the country, but you're visiting that home and maybe you're staying there for a couple weeks, listen, that day of Sabbath was for you too. God wanted you to even be brought into the Sabbath. He wanted you to taste the gift of rest and reflection and the redemption that could be yours if you put your faith in Jesus Christ or in Yahweh then. And it brings us to one of the central points of the Sabbath. And here it is. You ready? Why Why the Sabbath? Why was this so bad that they're breaking the Sabbath in Nehemiah's day? Listen, by honoring the Sabbath. Now you got to hear this. Because this is very much true today and I'll explain it at the end. By honoring the Sabbath, Israel was shining a light to the world that their redeeming God was merciful and good. It was their keeping of the Sabbath that empowered their witness to the world. You know how that worked? There's not another nation on the planet that had a Sabbath. Israel was it. The Phoenicians didn't have it. 
The Persians didn't have it. The Assyrians didn't have it. The Babylonians, the Philistines, none of them. The Canaanites, the Horonites, none of them had it. It was only Israel that was given a Sabbath, a day to cease from labor so they can rest and reflect and remember their Redeemer. Nobody else had it. It was a gift and it was a light and it was a witness. You come and you put your faith in Yahweh, he will give you rest. That's the witness. That's the testimony. And God blessed, you know how else it was a a witness? Now I want you to think about this. If you own your own business, you take one day off a week, that's one-seventh of your income that you lose. And God said, listen, trust me. Trust me. Don't work. Don't do ordinary work on that day. And trust me, I will open up the fields to grow a harvest that you could hardly imagine. And he did it, week after week, year after year. God blessed his Sabbath-honoring people, and the nations wondered. The nations marveled at this people, this, this little group of people called the Jews. Two million people coming out of Egypt, and yet they're honoring this gift from their God to rest and reflect and remember the Redeemer, and their God is remembering them. Their God is providing for them. Their God's doing what we don't have the faith to expect or even to ask. But verse 15 they let it go. They let, a, they let go their distinctness among the peoples of the land. They let go the Sabbath. Look what it says. Which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Gone was their witness. Forfeited was the gift that God had given them. And listen, now they're enslaved again. And now they're enslaved to, 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 to the Tobias and the Geshems and the Sanballats. They've got different enemies. It's the same enemy, just different names. So while we think maybe in this century, sitting here today, what's so bad about losing the Sabbath? What's so bad about giving it up? Listen, it was, it was losing their faith. It was losing their witness. It was losing the gift that God had given to them. It was saying to God, we don't trust you. We're going to go to a God substitute, an idol, and we're going to work and we're going to bow down to that idol and we're going to serve it so that it can provide what we want. That's the power of the world. See, here's what Tobiah does. And you got to get this. This is actually, I shouldn't tell you this, but if you listen to this, you can sort of phase out the rest of the sermon. All right, now that was not really true. But let me tell you this anyways. Tobiah wormed his way into the temple, the very house of God. You know what? The Tobias of the flesh want to profane our worship. Your flesh is doing that right now. I guarantee it. My flesh does too. You know that sometimes when I'm preaching, I get distracted. Sometimes when you're hearing me try to struggle for my words, I'm usually distracted by something. That's my flesh. My flesh is prone to weakness. Your flesh is want. Your mind's wandering. You don't want to be here. Some of you are forced maybe to be here. You can't wait to get out of here. It's hot. The ceiling fans are making noise. This is, this is the flesh wants to interrupt your worship. It wants to worm into your heart. It wants to not trust that God is really good in your life because of all of these catastrophes that are happening. 
And the world not only wants to worm in there, the world wants to rob us of worship and wants us so busy. Now listen, I'm speaking to a lot of us. It wants us so busy, wants us so distracted, so running after all of its raw materials that our worship really isn't very powerful. And our witness really isn't very distinctive. We don't really look a lot different than those in the world. And that right there might be the biggest travesty of the church. When a Christian no longer maintains their distinction from the world, we have no testimony. How do you fight the world and win? I just gave you the scenario, the situation. Let's get to the solution. How do you fight? How do you get into the battle? And how do you start coming against the world for victory? Well, let me walk you through simply what Nehemiah does. And I think if we learn from that and we adopt this into our life, we might find that we can get this victory as well. The first one is the word counsel. What's the solution? The first step is counsel. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were about to eat something that I knew was poisonous... And that was going to kill you, at least make you horribly sick and possibly kill you. Now listen, if you were about to eat that and I knew that there was poison in it, would you want me to do something like this? Now I would strongly suggest that you don't eat that. I don't want to impose my views on you. But I don't think you really want to eat that. Is that really what you want? How about if one of your children, let's up the ante a little bit. If one of your children were about to eat something that I knew was poisonous, and I didn't do anything about it, or I didn't say anything, and I didn't warn you, and I didn't counsel you not to eat that, what would you think of me afterwards? That's right. See, Nehemiah knows that profaning the Sabbath, giving it up, was killing their witness. It was killing their distinct people of God. Uh, See, I'm distracted again. I can't even think. It's, it's destroying their distinction before God. And he's going to do something about it. He's not going to soft pedal this. He's not going to pander to them. He's not going to come along nicely and say, you know what, I think you probably want to keep the Sabbath. He's coming strong and he's coming hard. Look what he says in verse 15. I warned them on the day when they, when they sold food. You know what that word warned means? It means that Nehemiah called to witness This is a legal word. This is a courtroom drama word. He called to witness. He testified against the people of God. He testified against the people of God. He says, I'm warning you. I'm warning you. You're bringing in food. You're selling stuff on the Sabbath. I'm warning you. You know what's going to happen. I mean, listen, he reminds them, I'm sure, of chapter 10. You know what happened in chapter 10, right? I mean, just flip back a couple pages to chapter 10, verse 31. Can you do that with me? And look what, look what they did. This is their massive recommitment, their reaffirmation of their covenant in verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. But here, they've let go of their commitment. This is probably a couple years later. How did that happen? Well, you've got Geshem, the world. Geshem, who represents this world system. Now listen, it's pouring into their hearts 
a love for money. Well, let's talk a little bit about why we don't have a regular rhythm of rest and reflection and remembering our Redeemer. Well, you work in a job that's high capacity, 50, 75, 100 emails a day that need to be answered. Don't want to get behind by the time you get to work on Monday. So on that day, perhaps it's Sunday for you. It doesn't need to be the same day, but maybe it's Sunday that you take for a regular rhythm and a rest, refreshment, recollection of God's redemption, power. Maybe all that day you're opening up email. Why? Why would you do that? See, we're not that different than Nehemiah's contemporaries. If you've got an opportunity to make a hundred bucks on a day that you had set aside for a regular rhythm, what would you say? What would you do? Well, Pastor Tim, you can't be legalistic. I agree. But you could get so non-legalistic that you become permissive. I warned them on the day when they sold food. You've got the power of preaching. This is what I'm doing. I'm kind of stiffening up a little bit today. I'm, I'm preaching a little bit harder because, listen, we're a lot of Sabbath breakers in here. We're not doing real well, and I know this because I pastor a lot of you pretty closely. You're working a lot of hours and you're not reflecting and you're not remembering and you're not celebrating and worshiping your Redeemer God so that your faith is being boldened and that your testimony is strengthening. You want to know why a church is weak? This is one of the reasons why a church is weak because they're not honoring a regular rhythm of rest and reflection. Look what he says in verse 16. The Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. The Tyrians are Phoenicians. They are maritime experts. They live on the Mediterranean coast. Here's what they give. Here's what they were experts in. They caught the fish and then they dried it. They smoked it. They salted it. And they brought it into Jerusalem. Now listen, this is the cool part. It's actually horrible. You remember that this gate... That they would bring fish in was called the fish gate. Do you remember that gate when we walked around in chapter 3, these gates? Do you remember the fish gate? The choir went around these gates again in chapter 10 and chapter 11. The fish gate was a gate that the Tyrians would bring their wares, their merchandise, their dried, smoked, and salted fish. But that was the gate of witness. That was a gate of testifying. That was a gate which represents that we make fishers of men. That we bring people to the cross, to the sheep gate, to the salvation. But you've got... You've got Tyrians pouring through this gate on the Sabbath, the very gate that was to be their distinction of the Jews. The gate that was to say, we are the people of God and we honor our God, but it was overrun. So Nehemiah testified to the people. He warned them of what they were doing and then he moves to confrontation. See, sometimes counseling's not enough. Sometimes you've got to confront the problem at its roots. The authority, the ones who had authority over the gates, they were, look what it says, they were the nobles of Judah. They're the leaders. 
They're the ones in authority. Then I confronted, verse 17, the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? He confronted them. That means to contend. It means to conduct a legal lawsuit against another person. He is opening up court because they're profaning. They're taking something sacred and they're reducing it to something ordinary. And this is what they're doing. They're taking this this day that they were to cease from labor, cease from ordinary labor, and they're bringing it right back down to an ordinary day of the week that was no different from the other six. In verse 18, here's the legal code that Nehemiah invokes. It's the word of God. It's precedence. Look at verse 18. Did not your fathers act in this way? Here's precedence. And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? How did he know that? Because the word of God says so. In fact, spurning the Sabbath was one of the reasons that God brought judgment against the Jews. So here we've got that the people in authority had thrown their gates wide open and they weren't protecting their people. You know how that works today? Now parents, I've got four kids, so let me speak to you as I speak to me. We're the gatekeepers for our children. So can I ask you parents a question? Are you leading your family to have a regular Day a week where you rest from ordinary labor and you reflect, you rest and you remember your Redeemer. Are you leading your children in this? If you're not leading your children in this, doubtlessly they're not going to learn it. Where you reflect on God's creative acts that past week, this past week. Where you worship the God who redeemed you and whose mercy was abundant all week, every day, because we sin every day. He counseled them, he confronted them, but there comes a point where you've got to act. You've got to act physically. You've got to take steps we see that he corrected them. You know, Bill Gates explained why he didn't believe in God. You know, Bill Gates, $48 billion, I think, the last I checked. Here's why he did, one of the reasons why he doesn't believe in God. He says, quote, in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. Sounds kind of Gatesian, doesn't it? Have you let go of a regular weekly rhythm of resting, reflecting, and worshiping your Redeemer? Listen, if so, Nehemiah, you know what he would be doing in your life? He'd be counseling you. He'd be confronting you. He'd be warning you that you're making idols, that you're forfeiting grace, that you're robbing yourself of the testimony that you could have in the world. But there's a point in the battle where words aren't enough. You've just got to take action. And you got to close the gates. You know, I recently took a week off and did something I don't normally do. I actually turned off my phone's email sync feature. Now, some of you are married to workaholics. You know, their God is their work. You know, they're gaining their reputation, their who they are, their identity through 
pleasing, their boss pleasing, their coworkers. Listen, if you're married to that person, you may not even know that you can turn your phone off. Did you know you could turn your phone off? I mean, you've been hearing, sorry, honey, the emails just come through and I've got to check. It might be someone who, who's had an accident and they're bleeding all over the road. I've got to check my texts and my emails, right? I mean, that's kind of the way they work. It's the way I work. Technology was supposed to lessen the load. Ironically, it's increased. The world is not going to produce anything that will enable you to worship God. Listen, anything that's coming from the world, I can tell you, our enemies are going to use it. And they're going to try to rob us of our worship. You know, a recent survey, 25 years ago, Americans worked 40 hours a week. Now the average is 50. A recent survey discovered that more than half of professionals, more than half of professionals work on their vacations. They answer calls, they're reading, they're responding to emails and texts. Listen, I'm telling you, they're bowing down at an idol. And they're forfeiting the grace that ought to be theirs. They're not resting, they're not refreshing, and they're not remembering their Redeemer. They're pursuing what the world wants to promise it can offer. So I turned off the email. Listen, shockingly, shockingly, I found that the church did not self-destruct. In fact, somebody asked me, Hey, Pastor Matthew did a really good job. Could you take a few more weeks off? Now, I believe they're of Satan, but still, the point is, I can actually get away from church, and it's going to do fine without me. God wants us to rest, reflect, and remember our wor- our Redeemer. And if we open the gates to the world, God's going to close them one way or another. Either it's a stroke or a heart attack or it's diminishing returns. You're just finding that you're not earning the money that you used to earn working seven days a week. Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. You've got to take action. You've got to shut the, the gates. See, the Sabbath day started, did you know this? It started at sundown when the first three stars appeared in the night sky. And it ended 24 hours later when the first three stars appeared again. That was the Sabbath. And when Nehemiah saw those stars in that darkening sky, listen, he slammed those gates shut. And look what he did. He placed his own servants to watch the gate. Trustworthy people. Because gatekeepers in every generation have been vulnerable to bribery. It's one of the ways that the Great Wall of China fell to the Huns. And Nehemiah sets up trusted guards. Watch what happens, verse 19. Then the the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them, he's action, this is action. I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I'm going to lay my hands on you. I'm going to remove you by force. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Listen, you remember what he did at Tobiah? He removed all of 
to buy his furniture, threw it right out of the house of God, took it down through the dung gate, burned it into the valley of Hinnom, certainly. He does the same thing here. He says, listen, you show up again, and I'm going to remove you by force. Tobiah never came back. Geshem doesn't come back. You've got to take action. Listen, you're not going to ease your way into a regular rhythm of rest reflection and remembering your Redeemer. It will not happen if you try to tiptoe your way into it. It will take counsel, it will take confrontation, and it will take correction. There's got to be a change. In order to overthrow the city, you didn't attack the wall, you attacked the gates, which is why it says in Genesis, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. You own the gates, you own the city. Parents, let me talk to you again. One of the three biggest ways that Satan brings the world system into our children is through the television, the internet, and video games. Oh, Pastor Tim, he's really going off on the deep end. We're the trusted servants, parents. We're the ones who guard the gates. And one of the best things that Denise and I did years ago, here's the best thing I think we've done as a parent, one, one of the best things we've done, we shut off the gate of the television. We just got rid of it. We own a TV. There's internet. Now listen, we're not creating a subculture. We're not trying to live in a, in a protective enclave so that the big bad world doesn't get to us. Listen, that's not what it is. We recognize this is a gate that the enemy is pouring through. We shut it off. We've got internet. We've got Netflix. We've got the ways to watch things that we want to discern our way through. But we don't have TV. And there's for a reason. These are the gates through which Satan can import the world's goods. So that television, Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo... All of these things, we monitor them. But for many Christians and Christian families, listen, this is a travesty. They're, they're not even guarding the gates. There comes a point where you've got to counsel, you've got to correct, you've got to confront. But when they leave the gates, when you recover a regular rhythm of rest, refreshment, and remembering your Redeemer, you've got to consecrate that day. You've got to set it apart. And keep it set apart. And that's the fourth point. Are you thinking about now uh, that one day a week? Are you, are you thinking like this? Because I'm afraid that some of you might be. That you know you got to sit around. You don't do anything on that day. You go to church. You pray. You sing old hymns. Then you take your afternoon nap. Is that what you're thinking that I'm preaching? Because that's not what the Sabbath even looked like. Here's what it looked like. It was a day set apart to stop ordinary labor, but they joyfully celebrated. They weren't allowed to fast. You couldn't mourn on this day. It was be a day of joy. It was set apart not by what was not done on it, but by what was done. They wanted you to enjoy life. God said, I want you to enjoy life, not step out of life and sit around doing nothing. Celebrate. Have festivals. Have feasts. Bring people to your home. Be with people and the people of God. But when you lose that regular rhythm, then you're going to lose the battle against the world. And you're going to lose your witness to your God. Verse 22, Then I commanded the Levites 
that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. How do we, how do we keep the Sabbath day holy today? Well, you can see on the screen, we don't celebrate the Sabbath anymore. The Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ. Now it's called the Lord's Day. The Sabbath day was a shadow. It marked the approach of Jesus, the Son of God, the giver of eternal rest. We do not toil in our good works. We don't hope desperately that we're going to earn the paycheck of salvation. We can find our Sabbath rest in Christ who earned our righteousness for us. So when you trust in his work, you enter into his rest. Now listen, Christians, when you put your faith in Jesus, you entered into the Sabbath of Jesus Christ. There is no longer a command for a Sabbath. He invites anyone to come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The legal obligation from the word of God to observe the Sabbath command, it expired with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking, then why, was, why were you preaching this? Now listen, the legal obligation of the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Jesus. But the moral law, listen, the moral law, the Ten Commandments were written in stone by the finger of God. They are to perpetually endure. All Ten Commandments endure today. They are moral righteousness The moral law, the reason that it was given, the goodness of the moral law, it endures today. And there is to be a regular rhythm of rest and reflection and worship with our church. This is why, listen, this is one of the reasons that we started a Saturday night service. Can I, can I bring, I don't want anybody's pity and neither does Pastor Matthew or Pastor Tim, but can I bring to you a point? Do you know this killed our weekends? It's killed our weekends for three and a half years. We're here Saturday afternoon, evening, Sunday. We don't have a weekend. We have Friday, that's it. But we do this because there's some of you who work on Saturday, Sundays. I met somebody yesterday at the block party. He can't make it to church. He works on Sundays. We'll come out to our church on Saturday. This is why we want you to celebrate, to rest, to reflect on our Redeemer. And when you enjoy that, you demonstrate your trust that God's going to provide for you. You take a day and you say, listen, my job has met a gate that is closed and I will not open it. And I will reflect on my family. I will rest with my family. I will refresh with my family. And I will remember my creator, redeemer, God. And we're going to have a heart whose faith is growing. And a testimony. The world says you're different. It's to be a day that is a blessing, not a burden. We're a freed people, not to live to ourselves, but to love God with all of our hearts and our neighbors as ourselves. It's a day that strengthens our faith to fight this battle against Tobiah and Geshem and Sanballat. It's what B.B. Warfield said. Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him on the resurrection morn. The flesh wants to profane our worship by letting sin find a lodging place in our hearts. Now listen, the world wants to distract you 
distract me from worship through keeping busy, through consuming ourselves and what the world offers. A regular day a week to rest and reflect on our great God and worship Him with His family. It is a gift from God in every age to strengthen our faith and to increase our testimony to the world. Have you let that go? Now listen, some of you, here's what I'm going to encourage. Some of you need to repent. Some of you need to repent. Because you're working every day. And you think you're resting because you're only working half of the seventh day. You're working every day. You don't have a regular rhythm of refreshing rest and reflecting on God and remembering your Redeemer. You're going to have to repent. Or your testimony will render you ineffective. Your life, rather, will render your testimony ineffective. Listen to the counsel of God. Confront the open gates in your life. Close them. Correct them. What needs to be corrected. And then set apart a day a week. Set it apart to rest, reflect, and remember your Redeemer. Amen.